And we're kind of like a real-time AI Harry Potter sorting hat, where as people are playing the game, we can predict the psychology, understand which groups they're in, and then allow developers to really understand who their most valuable players are, personalize the game for them. Welcome to Games Growth with Uptick, a podcast about the discipline of scaling digital games. We speak with industry experts and investigate trends to hide the strategies, technology, and tactical methodology to profitably grow your game to massive global audiences. My name is Andrew Gosta, Director of Marketing here at Uptick, and joining me today... Warren Woodward, Co-Founder of Uptick. And our guest, Joe Sheppey. So this is a very interesting one. I'd say a little bit more of an exploratory call. We had never met Joe before this call, and he's working on something very, very interesting which is a new way to psychologically profile game players as a way of increasing conversion and gameplay performance, among other things. Warren, what are some key takeaways that you took from this call? Yeah, well, first of all, I learned that biopsychosocial AI is a thing. And it's <laughs> yeah, a thing yeah. that, while it sounds extremely buzzwordy, and I think um, it's fair to say, Xander, we didn't know Joe previously. We went into this with maybe like a little skepticism yeah. because we see AI plastered all over everything now. And you tie that with some other smart sounding buzzwords and your skepticism meter goes off. But this sounded like a really interesting founder that we had a chance yeah. to chat with. So we were excited about it. I came away with a very different opinion. Like Joe is clearly super bright, very humble, very down to earth and has the bona fide background. Like he's been doing this kind of research for years. This is not some like Johnny Come Lately AI startup that just like you know, plastered these terms all over. So I came away with just sort of a better use case of something that game developers can do instead of more traditional audience research in more manual ways that we've been doing. This was super interesting. How about you, Xander? What were, what were your takeaways from this one? Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things he said is that this is the biggest database of cyber, was it bio? Psychological database. Bio, yeah, one of the largest psychological databases in the world or the largest psychological database in the world. And the way he kind of backed that out was there's 3 billion gamers and they've got like, I believe about 10% of that audience, maybe a little less. And that's a huge, huge data set. And the way they go about it is really, really fascinating. They collect it from, it's basically like a word of video interstitial. So, I mean, I think the technology sounds super awesome. I'm excited to check out a dashboard at some point. And you allude to this, but when we hear about the buzz term AI, we're kind of like rolling our eyes and this is something that's way in the future. I think the thing that's interesting about this product is it sounds like it's ready now and big, large game companies are using it. And that's, I think, you know, what makes this interesting. Yeah, exactly. I feel like normally when you're speaking to a quote unquote AI company, the more you kick the tires, the less you believe in the product. And this was actually kind of the opposite today where the more we drilled in, it was like, oh, there is something here. This is compelling. There is a use case for gaming. I see how we would use this on the games we're working on. So yeah, I think this was a pretty fun one. It gets into some big ideas while still being quite digestible. And I think yep. people will really value it. Awesome. And as always, the podcast was brought to you here by our team at Uptick. At Uptick, we are always learning and trying to try to be on the cutting edge of the best ways to make games grow. This is games across all platforms and technologies, PC games, mobile games, games across platforms, Web3 games, Web2, Web5, Web6, Web7. So we do, uh, we, we really love the business of growing games. We love meeting anyone building. If you're launching the next top 10 game of which we've done multiple, or you're just a startup and you're getting ready for your first launch, talk to us. We love meeting people building cool stuff and seeing if there's a way we can help or at least like point you in the right direction. You can reach us on our website. That's uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for joining us. Joe, will you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to start Solston? Sure. So Joe Sheppy, CEO and co-founder at Solston. We've been doing this for about five years now. 
it was kind of a, an unfolding rather than like, hey, I have this really good idea. Let's try this thing. Early in my career, I kind of asked the question, how can you impact human awareness at scale? That was a question I asked myself. And so the first conclusion is like, well, maybe you become a psychologist. So I volunteered in the ER room when I was in high school, saw that most patients that were in the ER happened to have a lot of mental health issues and try to go upstream from that and didn't really see myself being a psychologist back then. So said, well, maybe I'll study human factors, psychology. And, and what if we designed things that actually were designed to human potential, what people could be? I think Neil deGrasse Tyson, someone asked him, like, what's your biggest fear? And he said, if I saw all the other versions of myself and all the other universes and saw the ones that lived a better life than me, and what were the little things that they were aware of that, that I wasn't? And if you look at most major human problems, they're awareness issues. So went into user experience design, became a UX director at McCann, started my career actually in Switzerland. I ran a usability lab there, worked with a lot of big clients and was constantly asking, who is my customer? Who is my user? And a lot of times you get demographic data or sometimes behavioral data. Everyone's kind of, I think, familiar with the Ozzy Osbourne and King Charles example, where it's like 76-year-old male from the UK, top economic tier. You know, they fit all the same demographics, but they could probably not be more different in terms of how we would market to them or how we would design to them. And so, you know, really at the end of the day, if we want to improve something, we have to understand it. So if you want to improve awareness, if you want to know that your system is healthier for a person, if you want to know that your marketing is good for a person, you have to be able to measure those things. So I went back to school, back to clinical psychology, went to grad school, worked with patients, became a psychotherapist, specialized in adventure-based psychotherapy. I did that while I was in UX and ended up being the head of UX over at Big Fish Games. So one of the things I focus on was play. And one of the beautiful things about play, it's about as authentic as you can get. So sometimes people will be like, wait, when I play video games, I'm like hyper competitive and like crush people. I'm like, well, that's who you get to be when no one's looking. Like that's actually more telling of you than who you are at work or sometimes in public. So there's a saying, it's like, show me how you play. I'll tell you who you are. So went to games and said, could we actually measure authentic human psychology from play? And through that, if you look at awareness, behavior change, all that sort of stuff, on average, it's about 400 to 500 recycles of a certain activity for a new synapse to form. Hmm. When you do something under a state of play, it only takes about 10 to 20 times. So play is a very powerful enabler of learning of, if you're thinking of a skill, if you're thinking of awareness, if you're thinking of anything. So games are so powerful for learning when it comes to that, they're also so powerful for measuring who we are. So Solston was born out of this idea of, can we help games understand people in a safe, anonymous way? And can we help them adapt to people in a way that's good for them, but also drives revenue for businesses? So that's a little bit of my, my history and how I got to where we're at today. Got it. And we definitely want to go next a little bit more into the specifics of Solston, but I, I want to back up a little bit and I'll have you elaborate on something you just said, which was the power of the state of play. And can you elaborate a little bit more on the why behind that as far as like what you know from your research and why you know we can do things like learn easier in a state of play, or at least that's what it sounds like you're alluding to? Absolutely. If you, don't, if you look at all mammals, whether it's two young squirrels or dogs or et cetera, we have this innate thing where play is a part of who we are, especially when we're younger. Children, that's it's just a natural state, natural thing for them to do. And as we get older, there's actually 
you know, people say, hey, your brain stops growing at 30 years old. Well, what you actually see is fluid memory, for example, tends to go down at the age of 30 and crystal memory goes up. But there's been studies actually where people play video games at the age of 30 and fluid memory starts to go back up again. So play and the nature of play, if we look at how we're wired as a species, when if you look at ideal or optimal learning, so adventure psychotherapy is based off of a really interesting premise. You can think of it as like reverse PTSD in a lot of ways. When you're in a dangerous state where you have, let's say, epinephrine, adrenaline being activated, adrenaline is kind of interesting in the brain in that it acts kind of as like a neural lubricant. So if you're playing you know, a football game or you're playing a video game, we have sometimes these spikes in cortisol or adrenaline. And what that actually does for a brain, if you think of it from a survival perspective, we're saying it's time to focus. This is an important moment. Survival is dependent on it. So the brain is more likely to wire to these sort of moments. And the idea is you're having it in a positive setting. So the difference between play and where someone might get PTSD is play, one of the prerequisites is it's, it's safe. You know, I say this about some Web3 games from the past. Once you're playing a game to work to make money, like that's work now, that's not play. So yeah. play is unstructured, play is fun. Games is play with rules built around them. You know, we talk about like medical games. A lot of medical games are not fun. The second you have to remind somebody to do something, it's not a game anymore. So it's not play anymore. And so the learning aspect goes away. So just because you gamify something doesn't mean it's play. So really the evolution of the species, play is just a fundamental thing for all apes. You know, we're apes, we're part of the great ape family. Whether you're looking at a chimpanzee or a gorilla, it's a core part of how we learn. And as adults, video games are the most accessible form of play that we have. Got it. So after all this time I've been playing video games, I actually haven't been wasting my life. I've actually been learning, saving us. <laughs> you have not been. You have not been wasting your life. I get like asked this all the time. Like, should my kids play games? I don't like them that they're playing games. The answer is like, if they're below three years old, they shouldn't be having screen time. Right. But there's a study that there's a lot of like good research. Once kids start to turn like 13 years old, there's a study showing that kids that were over the age of 13 who played games for at least three hours a day well outperformed all of their classmates and every academic subjects that's out there. Mm. So in terms of like cognitive training and what games can, games are incredible in terms of our ability to learn and create new skills. Well, this is reinforced my bias in a way I really like, so I approve. Okay, so <laughs> we, we started from the very abstract and I kind of want to like loop back to the very abstract, but you know, this is a games growth focused podcast and I want to really focus on that's something, something that's really tactical for audience. So let's talk a little bit about what Solston is and what problem does it solve for game developers? Yeah, so the way to think of Solston is we are the best way to understand an audience. We're a consumer insight engine. And when you think of, well, what does it mean to understand an audience? Well, for the last, let's say, I don't know, before Solston existed, we, know, we kind of went from demographics to some social graphics and then we got really in gaming, especially mobile gaming, we got really obsessed with behavioral data. And we thought that that's who our customers are. They're where they clicked, what they bought, what they did. When in fact, what you do is actually very, very, has very, very little to do with who you are. Who you are is, is your personality, it's your culture, it's your values. It's all these things that drive decision-making, they drive behavior. So what Solston does is we measure within live games, we're able to measure about 300 different psychological traits on players. We do it anonymously. And we're kind of like a real-time AI Harry Potter sorting hat. 
where as people are playing the game, we can predict the psychology, understand which groups they're in, and then allow developers to really understand who their most valuable players are, personalize the game for them, really make sure that the Fatui is tight, that the first time experience is tight. And then every time we measure customers, those people go into our database too. They can go out of it as they please. They get a unique ID where they're anonymous. We don't know who they are in real life, but Solso is the largest psychological database in the world. So how we work with like a lot of big IPs, for example, Monopoly Solitaire might come to us and that was one of our customers or is one of our customers. Hey, we want to build a game for Monopoly people. And because our psychological assessment is like 75% psychological questions and 25% just normal survey questions like what's your favorite games, what's your favorite movies, we're able to take all this data and then we can build audience off of that, allowing companies to, when they develop games or develop creatives, actually know that they're developing creatives for the key, I'd say your ideal audience profile is a way to think of it. Got it. One thing I'm trying to wrap my head around, Joe, is in the scenario you described, what's the, forgive my bluntness, but sort of what's the product, like what's the outcome that the developer is working with and how do they utilize that? Yeah. So if you're in your game development process, then you're working with our product called Navigator. Mm -hmm. And what Navigator is, is effectively, it's a dashboard. Let's say we're making a first person shooter game for people that like Barbie. Like you'd come to us and say, who are all the FPS people that love Barbie? We're pulling that audience. It's going to be lots of people. The algorithm in real time is going to cluster these groups. And then you're going to need to learn almost anything you'd want to know about these people. So what are the other games that they're playing? What are their personality attributes? Are they extroverts? Are they introverts? Are they altruistic? What are their values? Do they value family? Do they value time? Do they value nature? What are their interests? Almost everything you could imagine. And a lot of people, a lot of times have the demographic stuff where Solson is really unique is the things that actually drive behavior. Mm -hmm. So for example, an old game we used to work with was called Dragon Vale. Why I like this example Mm -hmm. is they AB tested the crap out of everything and got to this red baby dragon. It was an icon in their their app store. They're like, we can't beat red baby dragon. That's the glass ceiling. They go into their audience. They click on what are the highest scoring traits for our highest LTV group. Family and caring were the two highest that were there. Their VP of marketing goes, can we please make icon of baby dragon with family caring about it? And that went into the the art and the app store. Increase in 34, 34% increase in conversions on top of anything that they had in the past. So the way to think of Solson is when you go into that dashboard for Navigator, that's really your way to understand your audience. And then when companies are testing during their game development process, whether testing features, art styles, themes, marketability testing, play testing, Solston integrates into all that. So I'll give you an example. We had a former VP of data science at Machine Zone. He just launched a game company, big fan, their customer. They're doing art style testing. They test all their different art styles. And in the past, what would happen, he'd say, hey, this art style is kind of looking muddy. Like some people really are resonating with it. Other people are not really resonating with it. Well, what Solston can see is it's this Persona 4 that's really not resonating with that art style. But because we have the psych data, we can look at their personality and we can say, hey, these guys are pretty high on depression. They're kind of down. They're sad. They're anxious. They hate everything. These are parts of their personality. And we're like, you know what? This is Eeyore. For them, it's not about like what is the most resonating. It's about what sucks the least. So for them, normally what would happen in that sort of test data is your test is all, it's going to be muddy. And that's pre-Solston, that's how the world would be. But now you can say, hey, you know what? This user also 
from a market size, because we have an idea of psychologically, there's 3 billion people in the world that play games every day. We can know that, you know what, there's only about 10 million of these guys in the market. So we can actually ignore that test data and we can focus on this group where there's 200 million people like them in the market and really double down on that creative style. And that's some of the like, kind of like during the development cycle, what happens in terms of how people use our navigator product. The dashboard that you're logging into, that's called Traits. That's our product for live games. That's the one where we're measuring the live audience. So think of it as kind of like a living, breathing view of your audience. Like we had games like Merge Mansion, for example, that we started out with really early on. And all of a sudden you see a completely different persona as the game scales. Mm. And that's mm -hmm. really, really powerful. When I was at Big Fish, as an example, when we were scaling Dungeon Boss, we had a bunch of organic installs. We got featured in the app store. We were in kind of the top 40 grossing at some point. That brought in a lot of different people and we started seeing different user behavior and different behavior patterns. So I was you know, set to go, hey Joe, go research that, go figure that out, okay. And we had all these people that were leaving the game at day 30, didn't know why. Well, we end up finding out that they were older women. The game was built for like younger guys, I guess, who liked the battle bosses. But they're older women who just wanted to collect a lot of characters. That was their goal. And they didn't collect all the right characters, so they didn't have the right group. And by the time they got there, they churned because they didn't have that cohort. Well, that was found out maybe like nine months too late. So with Solston, when you're looking at traits, you have that living, breathing version of your audience. Then what you're able to do is we have this API. So now that you're seeing all their different psychological traits, we have this new feature coming out called Impact Indicator. So you can literally put in whatever metric you have, like let's say it's day seven retention, mm -hmm. and it will tell you within your game for Persona 1, for example, their altruism is positively impacting day seven retention. Cool. Do more stuff for them in the game where they can help other people. And we have these sort of cases all the time. So it's a really cool technology where you can kind of start to understand all the why behind your data based on your players. We just had this with like Supercell at Heyday, where they came to us and said, we want to get day seven retention up. They implemented an event and engagement went up by 22% based on the traits of the audience. So it, what it's allowing for is companies to take their behavioral tech stack that they have today, and it's really allowing for cognitive behavioral data. So the traits component, a big part of the power is not even in the interface, it's in the API. So it's in being able to integrate with the traits. And we have games like we'll build out Fatui's and people that are high in competence they'll spell bigger words than the ones that are low in competence. So those IDs are getting that personalized experience, which is really helping nurture them through those early parts of the funnel and beyond. Got it. You said something that stuck with me, which is that the traits of your audience really can evolve and change as a game scales. And you mentioned Web3 earlier, and I think that's an area where it's just like extremely pronounced. And it's something we've seen a lot working in that space is that Early on feature requests, you have this early adopter audience of Web3 natives, and they have a very specific set of needs, and they usually want more complexity, more things that are like Web3 native or that matter to that subset. And often this can steer a developer down the wrong path because then they try to scale their game to you know, 10 million players. And this larger, broader audience has a completely different set of desires and needs than that formative audience, but without the ability to properly kind of quantify what is in my maximum addressable market, how significant is this audience that I have that I'm listening to that's driving feature requests today? I think that gets often lost in the shuffle. You nailed it, Warren. So like perfect example of that is uh, NFL rivals. You know, they 
mythical, you know, Web3 game company, really wanted to drive things forward there. The interesting thing I think about Web3 is it kind of goes in cycles with crypto. When crypto gets happy, Web3 gets happy. And then when it goes down, and so, you know, a company like Mythical says, we need to make something that's sustainable beyond that, but also still sticks to our core audience. You know, we can see in our backend, there's a ton of overlap with NFL IP and people that like crypto. So you're still catering to that core audience. And then what they did was they built that game. They came to us and said, hey, can we see an audience of people that like NFL IP and are crypto light? So not crypto heavy because they wanted to get to scale. And that's still a part of their brand, still a part of their IP. And then that way they were able to build that game, which I think it's been a top grossing game on the app store in terms of the sports category for a few months now anyway, or at least it was number one for a while, if it, not, if it still isn't. But that's how they got there. They built for basically not for that niche, small group of people. And you can see that in our dashboard. So you can see like Persona 4, you know, maybe they're the fearless group and all this is unique to your specific audience. So there's not like prepackaged stuff going on, but you might see that, wow, wow. And hey, that's me. We've actually had game developers come back to us and like, that's my persona. Cool. And we look down at the market size, like, you know, there's only 2 million of you in the market, right? The I am the user thing that's happened sometimes. It's like, so wait, you're saying when I give feedback on features and art styles and themes and creative, I'm giving feedback maybe from a perspective of a very small part of the market. It's like, that's correct. And so if you're a game developer or a creator, you're still never the market. You're never the user because we're builders. We're creating it for these big groups, but that's exactly, exactly it. Yeah. I wanted to circle back on something that you said earlier, or just get a little bit of better understanding of how the actual process works. I mean, this insight sounds super, super interesting to me. I'm trying to get a better understanding of how do you actually, like one question, you said it's the biggest database ever. How big is it? And number two, how do you actually go about collecting and categorizing the folks? Is it from, you said something about a survey earlier, is it from the survey? Is it from things they're doing in the game? Like how does that process of actually aggregating the data set work and how big is the data set? Yeah, so the data set is hundreds of millions of people. We're getting towards, that's part of our business thesis is 3 billion people play games every day and only 4 billion people have smart devices. So effectively from a consumer insight engine, if you're Nielsen or if you're one of these sorts of companies, we're out here to eat your lunch eventually. That's the hope anyway, because these are dinosaurs in terms of how consumer insights are done. So that's that. And so how we get the data in the first place is back to my history. So I started developing psychological assessments back when I was in university. And assessments are very different than questionnaires or surveys in the sense that they're assessing a thing. So like if you go to the doctor and they say, you know, hey, do you feel depressed? And you're like, yeah, that's not, they're not assessing depression. Humans, we're very poor observers of our own cognition. People are poor observers of other people's cognition. Therefore, what's important is this kind of idea of assessment. So most people get familiar with assessment especially in the United States when they have to go to college and take the ACT or SAT. You know, it's, it's the first time that, and you go, wait, based on my answers, the questionnaire gives different questions. If I do really well in physics, then it gives me these sort of questions. So that's how our questionnaire works. It's adaptive. The early days of machine learning in the 1970s, that's when adaptive computerized testing started with assessment. So, you know, a lot of us are familiar with like language learning models now, like ChatGPT. But David Weiss, University of Minnesota, that's where adaptive computerized testing started from. And so what they do in terms of assessing physics, we're assessing traits. So for example, you don't get to wake up and choose whether you're an extrovert or introvert. 
just the same way you don't get to wake up and you know choose how your nose looks. That's a trait that you have. <laughs> exactly. The average is like about 40% of who we are, are these traits that you can thank not just mom and dad, but all of your ancestors. Really like what we are genetically, we're more the shepherd of our ancestors than we are our mom and dad. So you got a lot of these traits, whether they're personality traits, physical traits, those come from the family. And then about 60% of our personality, who we are, is based on how we regulate those and express them. So the majority of ourself, how we enculturate, how we change is, okay, maybe I'm really introverted, but I really like this group of people. And I find that I can be pretty outgoing and get energy when I'm around these types of people. So you can actually modulate, you know, and someone meets you like, I didn't know this person was a huge introvert. Well, that's because they're choosing to express their introversion in a specific way around a certain group of people where they can be more outgoing. So we have all these different traits. You have your personality, you have your culture, you have your values, you have motivations, and some of these things are more consistent. So what we do is when somebody's playing a game, there's a pop-up in the game and it says, hey, would you be interested in helping improve your player experience? Hmm. They click on the pop-up, they get launched into our environment. Once they're in our environment, we've separated that person from their real identity. So that's a really important part of Solston. We believe privacy is power and we never want to attach real identity to that person's sensitive data, which is their psychological profile. They start taking questions. These questions are assessing different traits. So they're basically scientifically evaluated, what we call we call them items. So in psychometrics, these questions become items and these items evaluate. So certain questions like, let's say, how happy are you? Horrible psychometric question. It actually doesn't measure happiness if you actually look at the data for it. There's a slight amount of data that shows that it actually measures someone's indulgence, hmm. Not has nothing to do with happiness, but it's not reliable at all. So if you ask it now, and if you ask it in five years from now, it's going to change over time. Well, it's like, are they happy at the moment of the question? <laughs> exactly. Where psychometric items are very, very good at actually assessing something like extroversion. So if you're interested, we actually have a free pro bono thing we did during COVID, which is like wellbeing.solston.io. It's a valid psychometric test and you get your intrinsic motivation data, you get your adaptability data. So some really cool stuff that's there, but that can give you an idea of what it's like to take an assessment. So that's effectively what we do. It's an adaptive test. So it's learning about you as you're taking it. And after you take the test, somebody clicks on a link and says, hey, if you'd like to get your five gems or your reward, it's a backlink, a deep link into the game. They click it, they go back, it drops their reward. It's not always rewarded, but like 90% of the time we work with the developer that way. So that's step one. And that's basically our biological sample. It's typically about 10% of daily active users that take this assessment. So it's a lot of people that end up going through if you think of the size of a lot of the games that we work with, but that's like your strep test. So after that, what happens is most of our customers hook up their data. So KPI data, behavior data, and that's where that's where the Harry Potter predictive hat starts. So in an oversimplified way, hey, how fast did that person rebuild their base? Is that predictive of resilience? Cool. Well, here's a group here that we see is pretty resilient. And then we're able to start sorting, predicting psych traits, sorting. We have all the patents on this kind of stuff, which is pretty cool. But then we're able to end up on the other end of it with assessing a whole population. 
And so that navigator product, anyone who took the questionnaire, that's who ends up in our database for navigators. So like when NFL rivals, when they say NFL people that are crypto people, that came from that questionnaire. For the live games, basically we're, how we're able to assess the whole group is once that behavior data happens. And then the same way that I love that chat GPT exists now because it really familiarized people with what machine learning is. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing this for five years now. So three years ago, we would get a bunch of play data and it's maybe a blurry picture of who you are. Like the level of extroversion is a little blurry, the level of altruism, the level of openness, these are all maybe a little bit blurry. What you value is a little bit blurry. But now through the telemetry and as we work with more and more games, the goal is that that gets more and more precise over time. And you know, eventually we're at a GPT-4 type version where the fidelity is very, very clear and you can instantly get an understanding of your audience. So that's fascinating. I'd love to go in and play in the back end at some point, just understand it. You, you know, it's kind of hard for us to get away from talking about AI in the modern environment. And I sort of joke to Warren, it's like, oh, are they fundraising right now? Because their website says AI all over it. But I do actually want to ask you about, I mean, you spoke a little bit about all the technology that's in your platform and how you use ML to train a lot of this. Why in the aperture, like, how do you think that AI is going to affect the broad games ecosystem? You're talking about one side of it, but what are the sort of like downstream implications of widening the adoption of AI technology to the games ecosystem overall? I think it's like any tool. I think there's going to be always incredible gaming experiences that do well and they have nothing to do with anything of the word AI, you know? And so we're not fundraising. We raised our Series B like maybe about a year ago. We've been an AI company from the start when it was not sexy. That's who Solston is. And if you look at our team, Lloyd West, Lloyd's amazing. He's our ML lead. He founded the Game Tune team at Unity. Mm-hmm. He was the one who came to me and was like, Joe, I don't think you can tune games to people without knowing their psychology. And he's a PhD mathematician from Cambridge. And I said, Lloyd, you got to have the psychology part. He goes, do you have a job? I said, absolutely. So, you know, when you look at the foundations of Solston and a lot of the people that we have here, you know, we have particle physicists from CERN. We're like a very machine learning heavy, heavy institution. We have been from day one. So we started on that. What I do think, you know, when you look at AI and what it is, you know, if you look at ChatGPT, it can only tell you what is. It's, here's the internet today. It's not even right. private information. The future of AI and the winners are really going to come from private data sets. So what we're going to see is the same thing what we saw with Apple, where they start privatizing what they have. Because if you're protecting your data sets and creating learning models around it, that gives you distinguishable advantage against other groups. So in the same way that Solsten is very far ahead in terms of psychological data, we have a very unique data set there. What Solsten really is, is the AI of understanding people. Part of what I used to do is neuropsych evals. If you went to the doctor today and said, hey, I want a full neuropsychological evaluation. It's about seven hours of questionnaires and stuff like that. So what does AI do? Well, it speeds that up significantly because you're working with bigger databases. It can make that more accurate and more precise. So that's a really cool thing. So I think that's one aspect of it. If you look at Solston and where we're at, there's a gentleman who wrote a paper on kind of AI and the gaming industry and what all is out there. We don't see a lot of people doing generative stuff. It's hard enough to get a really good 
creative, especially if it's uh, maybe something to fit your audience as it is. What I do think is very powerful is we have customers using AI to test creatives like Midjourney. We have customers who will, if you think of like adaptive generative levels, they'll do some stuff there depending on the game and the backend engine. I think with a company like Solson, what AI is fundamentally going to do is going to speed up a lot of development processes. Because if you look at AI, it's a synthesis process. And if you look at human cognition, about 95 to 98% of what we do in a day is synthesis. We observe patterns and put those things together. But then that other 5% is generative. So what's going to happen and what I think AI is going to be really cool for is the synthesis of information is going to speed up and it's going to allow human beings to focus more on the generative aspects. And so in the early 1900s, they were great at synthesizing a lot of information really quickly, which allowed them to outpace people that maybe weren't as good at synthesizing, but were really creative, but were more scatterbrained. And they just couldn't sit down and synthesize all this information. Now, some of the creatives out there who just They're not going to do all that deep work of looking at 500 different creatives or 500 different visual ideas and then synthesizing it. Well, now they're going to be able to work with that. And I think a big part of the transition towards like a AI-based future, what's cool about it, it really transitions to people who know how to ask questions really well. So Mm -hmm. I think in terms of game development and what we're seeing, if you can ask really good questions and if you have really good generative thinking, which is effectively divergent and convergent thinking, being able to kind of work as an accordion in the brain, there's going to be a lot there. So our hope with Solston is we're really like the AI of human understanding and then the AI of adapting things to you, like discovery, people, places, and things. So if a very ghetto version of the matrix gets created, Solston would be needed as a part of that because it's understanding the person and then how the environment adapts to them. But people were so, I think Aldous Huxley said, only consistent people are dead ones. So we're so random and we move, we change, we evolve. And that's where we come back to is at the end of the day, it's always about understanding the person. And if you can use AI tools to get ideas and to accelerate the synthesis component, at the end of the day, the people that are really good at the genesis component, that's who's going to win. So I think it will speed a lot of stuff up going forward, but it's not not a panacea and it's not the answer to winning. I like some of the things you called out there and it's definitely been in line with some of our team's own internal explorations and testing with AI. I feel like the dream of AI creative has been pitched since I entered the industry back at like 20, 2014. It's like every trade show, there's someone that's like, AI creative is here, fire your creative team. And it's like, you called out the difference between Genesis and like iteration or exploration. And, and that's definitely, I think things always change, but still at this stage, that's what we've seen. You know, AI is great to generate 10,000 variants of an ad concept, but they're all iterative. And with iterations, we found usually comes incremental improvements. You know, anytime we get something that's like night and day, break things open, double the return on ad spend or half the cost of acquisition, it's usually because someone had a good original idea. And then you iterate off that for maybe extending it or, you know, further exploring it. But yeah, I'm glad that you called out what we can and can't do on the creative side at this stage. Yeah. I think we see the exact same thing because like we do have a significant amount of people that use Solston for building marketing creative and all the time where we hear, Hey, we increased return on ad spend by 20% or we increase installs by 30% when they're these big jumps or hey, I just want to let you guys know it's two years later and we have an evergreen creative that we made from Solston. 
That's right. I go back every time and I'm like, how did you do it? Well, we looked at the highest traits of our audience, the most defining parts of who that person was. And we got together as a creative team and mm-hmm. we built a creative around that audience. And it's like, I think Ogilvy, I'm a big fan because I grew up in kind of the agency world. You know, he, he made this point that at one point in the future, advertising will be like a gentle tap on the shoulder from a good friend. And it should be that way. It's not today. We still have to kind of <laughs> scatter and, you know, throw stuff around. But the better we understand audience, I believe that the more intelligent advertising gets at resonance over relevance, the closer we get to that future that Ogilvy described. Because if I think of like how I purchase on Instagram, which is not often, 99% of what they show me is just complete garbage. And a lot of it is relevance-based. It's what other things I looked at recently, what I did recently, et cetera, whatever cookies they're tracking me on. It's all this relevance data. The resonance data is, well, who am I and what do I need right now? Not what's relevant to me. And that's an anticipatory thing. That's a delight moment. I'm going to say delight is like when your expectations are positively negated. It's, hey, I didn't know I needed that. And if you want to deliver that sort of creative to a customer, like we knew that with Dragonvale, for example, a lot of parents played it with their kids. It was a big kind of mom and kid game. And it was just interesting to see that they really valued family and they really valued caring. And so if you were a consumer and all of a sudden a creative pops up of this little you know baby being cared about by a mom dragon, it's fitting into your value system, into your value framework. And there's nowhere on nowhere on creative AI generators that's going to come out and go, hey, can you build a creative for these people? Now, on the other hand, that's something we have talked about at Solston is as our technology grows, how do we speak to other AI systems. And maybe you could say, could you generate a creative for Dragonvale players? And it bypasses all that. At the end of the day, I see it as it's all just a level upper. So if now that's the baseline of an industry, because it only exists off of what exists, it's still only going to be able to generate a creative based off of its training model of all the creative that existed at the moment. So there's still some creative person out there who can generate that creative that's been generated off of the personality of the person of the highest LTV group of all the data that's there. And then they can build a creative that's probably way better than that because they can see that, use it for inspiration. So in the end, I think stuff is just going to get leveled up and more competitive because of of all this. Okay. So we're winding, we're getting close to winding downtime. If you were to speak, like I imagine most game developers aren't doing this deep psychological profile on most of their users. Maybe I'm wrong, but I haven't done deep dive on many large companies. I think this is something that's mostly something that the biggest game companies are doing. What is your advice and how should people who have no experience doing this type of psychological profiling think about how to start to incorporate this type of analytics and insight into their game development workflow? Yeah, so we do work with most of the larger game companies, but we also work with a lot of mid-size and small. And the small part, we just launched what we call our sales accelerator program. So you can basically apply to Solston if you're a small developer. If you have a small publisher or you're just raising money, you can start start basically for free with us there. So honestly, like this stuff is so hard to do that that's my recommendation in terms of how to start. If you just go online, and he's trying to go, hey, like, let me find the Myers-Briggs or the ocean model or self-determination theory. And I'm going to send out some questions. There's a higher chance that you end up with some really invalid 
data, then you end up with some good mm-hmm. data. Think of it as like trying to do self-diagnosis. Back when I was in grad school, they're like, you're going to read a lot of things. Do not diagnose yourself. It doesn't really work. And I think the first part, when people ask me and they say, hey, Joe, we've got no budget and we're, you know, we're pretty indie and we're small and we'd love to be a part of your sales accelerator program, but you guys didn't accept us. And I, oh, crap, you know, because it's, it is, we try to get as many people as we can, but we go through an approval process there. For those people, I say, number one, just start to get curious about your audience. And that's the thing that we even see big companies miss is people think they just know their audience because they play that same game. Like you're fundamentally wrong. Theory of mind means there's other people other than you that think of the world differently than you do. And a lot of people who lack that are the exact people who say like, I'm the user, I'm the player, I'm the gamer. And those are also all the games that we get to see fail. So I think that first part is curiosity and understanding that just because you play a certain game, your audience is probably very different than you. Just by in the fact that you're a game developer or you're a marketing person that is in the space. We're a very small group of people. We're very niche. And so where gamers is a very large group of people, there's 3 billion of them. And we're a part of that group, but, you know, because most of us game too. But that's one. So really having that curiosity. The second part is most people have experience getting to know a friend. And so my suggestion is, so don't go and try to do psychometrics. Don't like do what you know how to do as a human being, which is talk to people and learn about people. And I call it the birthday gift example. So if you don't think you could give a really good birthday gift to your audience, then you don't know them. And so it's like, you know, if you meet someone on the street and say, hey, what are you going to get that person for their birthday? If you have no way of knowing that, what are some of the questions you would ask them to understand what they care about? Like my co-founder and I, we went to high school together. We've known each other for a long time. Some of the stuff that he'll get me for my birthday, I would never even have expected. I didn't even know it exists. He's just known me for so long. But it's way beyond like, what did Joe click on? You know, oh, he, it's like, he understands my values. He understands my personality. He understands the context I'm in. And that allows him to create things that really resonate or, you know, give things that really resonate with me. So I think tactilely, if you go and interview about 30 people, I feel like that's kind of a decent number. In usability, they say seven people is a good number to get usability stuff. But from an audience perspective, get curious about 30 people that play your game. And just talk to them. As human beings, we've been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years now. Walk away with, you know, if you think of some descriptors of, hey, from that conversation, I have an idea of what they value now. Because people spend money on what they value. So that's really important. Like, we'll have game designers go, how should I build the economy out? And I go, well, that part of your audience, they value individualism way more than that other part of your audience. And so if they can spend money on achievement, on those sort of things, that's what they value. They're going to spend more of that currency on that. So what people value, what their personality is like, uh, get a sense of that. Personalities are easy to, not easy, but somewhat easy to read. Um, the things that people are are out there about, that's who they are. You know, the, the average parts of our personality, none of us get to see from each other. So the ones that are like, oh, I'm an average extrovert versus introvert. Okay, that's not interesting. But maybe from this call, like talking to to both of you, um, I can tell both of you have pretty high levels of, of openness. So I'm like, okay, you guys are curious about the world, which means you're also lifelong learners. Okay, Hopefully. you're learners. I can deduce that. So, and I can already deduce that just from this conversation. So if I'm thinking of my audience, that you guys are two data points, I'm going to go back and say, hey, they're very open. And from being open, I can also understand a lot of other things. So doing that, and then maybe just like you have a game design doc, 
you know, say, hey, I, I kind of noticed there was two or three major groups. And there's actually, you know, these are called proto-personas. And from proto-personas, there's actually strong research showing that you get about uh, somewhere from a 10 to 20% ROI just from building things off of these. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, just empathy. So just trying to put your brain in someone else's way of thinking, mm -hmm. it actually brings blood flow to your frontal lobe and it activates your frontal lobe, which is where all of our good decisions come from. So there's a lot of like really cool reasons why, why that's important. And then like on that journey, you know, if you end up having a lot of success there, then I'd say, you know, then come talk to Solston when you're making good money and you're growing and, or if you're, you know, you're building a new game and you're really excited, or if you're working, you know, with partners like Uptick and, hey, I'd love for these guys to have some of the psych data for some of the creatives they're building. <laughs> you know, we do partner with other groups too. So to get started, I think just curiosity and talking to people looking at patterns and then putting those in a game design type document. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Joe. And I, I, I threw out, while what your team is doing is clearly, you know, and we have no vested interest in Solston, we're meeting you for the first time today. I think you guys are clearly taking an innovative approach on things that some of it rhymes with things that game companies have done historically. And I would encourage our listeners to think about potentially replacing or at least exploring replacing part of your current process. Like the thing that's sticking in my mind as you come to this, which is like the bad version of something like this, of like audience research firms. I worked for a game company that will remain nameless, which they basically had the exact same game, but one version was with tanks, one was with planes, and one was with boats. And they hired this audience research firm that gave them a very compelling, I'm sure expensive report that said, you have tapped three completely different audiences for these games and you're making great decisions because there's no overlap in the audience that wants to go to war with a plane versus a tank versus a boat. And they were very happy with this report. But to that point of curiosity, it probably led them down the wrong path. And that's the thing that they did that probably checks the box that a solution like Solston, if what you say is close to accurate, I think can do a much more compelling practical use case for. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, when people tell us this, I'm like, man, that feels so 80s, you know, but it's still today. <laughs> that's still, that's yeah, we're not that old. 80s. <laughs> cool, Joe. Well, if someone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about Solston, where can they do that? LinkedIn for me, uh, Joe Sheppy, you know, more than happy to reach out. And then solston.io is our website. So if you like a demo, there's a demo button in the top right. Definitely click it, check us out. Um, the team's great. So it's very exploratory. We're you know, we're not pushy at all. Um, so we're just here to like turn people on to us, understand their audiences. And if you want to get a taste for yourself, I think the best way to get curious sometimes about other people is understanding ourselves better. Wellbeing.solston.io. It's anonymous. We don't collect any data from that one, actually. It's just there. There's no email, nothing. You can see kind of a report of your stuff. We actually had one customer who told us that this helped her more than her psychologist ever did through all of COVID. Understanding ourselves, I think, is the first big step into understanding others. So if you know what extroversion means to you, or if you know what altruism means to you, I think you can apply a lot of this stuff also more effectively than competitors can. So that's another way to experience Solston, I think, too. Awesome. Well, we'll wrap it there. Talk soon.